Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. And I'm Jeff Bisty. Wow. That sounded so much better when you said it. I know. And we're celebrating uh, today. That's why all this beer is here. Oh, um, that's right. You can't bring alcohol on the site. So That's why all these M&Ms are here. Yeah, that's what it is. M&Ms. Two years. Two years. Two years of mainframe podcasts from and, us. And they said it wouldn't last. They actually told us not to do this. <laughs> <laughs> we have to find a place for that, uh, um, oh, that sound dude. clip that we got from Mark Nelson. Oh yeah, so we we'll have to we we'll have to put that out on we'll Twitter through the or archives. Something. Yeah, I was I was actually yeah Thursday, which will be ten days since you hear this because it comes out on a Monday, will be um, two years. Yeah, that was that was two years, and I checked the logs of all the downloads because you know podcasting is an in person imprecise science. We have pushed out over two terabytes of mainframe MP3s. That's awesome. At two like terabytes. between fifteen and twenty megabytes a pop. That's that's a lot. Do the math. And that's uh, no, we, really, do the math. I, I, right now, do it. You're smart. <laughs> and uh, that's that's pretty cool, considering we've had 15 minutes of good content. Exactly. Awesome. A best of would uh, involve a lot of digging and not take up a lot of time on the listeners' side. <laughs> but yeah, two years. Uh, thank you so much for everyone's listening, for passing it around. I mean, it's uh, if we said we wanted to do this and this is how it would go, people would say, "Yeah, there's no way." That's not happening. That's not going to happen. So thank you. <laughs> And uh, this is also a special uh, episode for us because this is the first time mm -hmm. we've had an, a real honest-to-God IBM fellow on the show. Didn't we have another Jeff Fry? No, he doesn't count. He was, he, he was oh. gone by then. Okay, fair enough. Not a, not a real fellow Good. anymore. He's emeritus. He was fellow emeritus. That's right. We did say that. It wasn't the same. So why don't you introduce our guest? <laughs> and then we'll ask what a fellow is because that's kind of important. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Charles Webb, thank you very much for coming and being part of the show. Well, thank you. Good to be here. So um, you're a fellow. What does that mean? Uh, good question. Uh, it, it is the, the highest technical level within IBM. It is a technical executive position, uh, as is distinguished engineer. So it is a recognition for um, – contribution over over a long time and you know a serious impact to the business but it's also it's a position that gives me gives, gives me a, a chance to influence things at a strategic level and and work across a, a broader scope of the business than I could um, you know as a as a uh, distinguished engineer or STSM and the, and uh, it's like the top half a percent of the technical community, something like I'm that? I'm not sure what the numbers are. Um, I think there are about 80 active fellows right now. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty big deal, right? It's a big deal. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a very great honor. Um, I was kind of floored by it when, when it first came along. Um, I, it has opened up some opportunities, and mm. I've really appreciated the, the opportunities that I've had to uh, be a part of, of a very important business. And um, building teams and, and building computers and um, really having a, a positive impact on the industry. And and you actually build them, right? You're a hardware guy. You're not like a software weenie like we are. No, I'm, I'm a hardware guy. Um, I, I say I build computers. Uh, you know, one one consequence of, of rising up to higher scopes of responsibility is you, you get to do less and less of the hands-on. <laughs> um, the last machine that I actually owned any logic on was Z900, 
which shipped at the end of 2000. It was a good one, though. It was a good one, yes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, yes, I, I've, um, I, I do miss the, the hands-on. Um, but I, I started out doing performance analysis for processors and then moved over to the, to the uh, design team in 1987, I think. Is, uh, is that around when you became a fellow? No, I, I became a fellow in, in 2003. Okay. So I, so I started in performance, moved over to design. I like to say that's the only time in my career that I changed jobs in IBM, <laughs> um, but my job has just continually changed ever since then um, as I've gotten broader responsibilities and had a chance to work on different things. Uh, so I, I was appointed a, a fellow in 2003. That's nice. that's a long time ago. You've been doing this fellow job a long time. Yeah, you're making me feel old. <laughs> no, I think about it. It's uh, 2019. That's uh, six. We've already years. established we're not good at math here. <laughs> <laughs> and, I've, and I've already figured out that I'm, I'm the only non uh, non executive in the room. Right. So. <laughs> But I, I do have the power of editing this together. So. <laughs> yeah, that's why I always sound so bad. Yeah, I yeah, get it. Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you said that you, don't, you haven't really been doing hands-on work since the 900, but you've still been doing a lot of design work, right? I, I still do. I, 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 my work is more in, in terms of the high-level design and, and driving the concept and driving a lot of the, uh, the architecture uh, really looking at where the opportunities are to do new features and functions and uh, what kind of things we can do. I also have a lot of opportunities now to, to talk to clients. Uh, but I, you know, I say I own logic. You know, the last time I, I actually had any VHDL that was you know, my personal responsibility to maintain was back on, t- on uh, Z900. And, and VHCL, what is that? Uh, that? That's the hardware description language. It, 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 it's the equivalent of a programming language if you were programming. Ah, okay, but it's, that's for real, real computer people, not us software weenies. It, 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 if if you looked at it, it would look like some kind of strange programming language. <laughs> so the box that I draw that says like program goes in, answer comes out. <laughs> yes, that's that's what happens inside that box. Yes. Okay. All right. Just trying to scope things out. So, um, can you tell us, uh, Morris Law is pretty much tapped out at this point, right? It, it, that's a question I get a lot, and, and you know, first of all, it depends on how you define Moore's law. You know, Moore's law was effectively a a density statement that says we could keep making, putting more and more stuff on the same size of uh, silicon chip or silicon wafer. Um, and, and he defined this that, that there's kind of a pattern of being able to uh, take that down by by a factor. Um, Every at the time it was every eighteen months, and it kind of drew out to more like every two years. Um, a key part of making Moore's law work was something called Denard scaling, which was actually uh, invented by uh, Bob Denard, um, an IBM fellow. I I don't know if he's uh, still active or not. Um, he's also the guy that invented the one transistor DRAM cell, so <laughs> he's had a huge impact on the industry. Wow. Um, but he came up with the the formula that kind of goes along with that with that shrinkage that says if you scale all of these different dimensions by the same uh, factor, um, then what you end up with is things speeding up by that factor, being denser by that factor squared, the voltage goes down by that factor, the the frequency goes up by that, and the magic is that with that formula, 
power density stayed constant. Um, and it was a beautifully elegant result, and it is what drove the industry for a long time until we stopped being able to shrink some of those things by that factor because when layers get really, really thin, they, they stop acting as insulators. Uh, and, and part of the problem is that atoms don't scale very well. Huh. Uh, when you got things that are a few atoms thick and you're trying to scale it by some fact, it just it just doesn't work too well. So that whole Willy Wonka thing, yeah. <laughs> really. So it it, it you know we they, we you know the the uh, on the process engineering side they came up with all sorts of things to kind of get around that and keep moving, but eventually it got to where you, you can't keep pushing everything. So. Um, there, there was a, uh, an article in, in the New York Times about three years ago now, I think, um, on, on this topic, on the scaling. It was centered on Intel. But the, the headline on it, I thought, captured things perfectly. The headline on it was smaller, faster, cheaper, over. <laughs> uh, and the way I see it, we, we, can, we can still make things smaller, but it's getting harder and harder and more and more expensive. We really can't make them make the transistors faster anymore. Um, depending on how you measure, that's flattened out or even even regressed a little bit. Um, and the thing of get, making them cheaper is getting harder. The the idea with cheaper was you could put twice as much on a wafer, and so the cost per transistor would go down once you could, you know, reliably manufacture and yield at that uh, smaller dimension. Well, it's taken longer and longer and longer to get to where you can to do that. And that cost crossover is taking longer. And the, the, the amount that it costs to do what's called a new node going to the next, to the next scale is getting bigger. And so that, that economic equation is, is getting harder and harder to close. And that's why there's been a, a reduction in the number of companies that are able to drive that. It's what really led us to divest the chip manufacturing um, because we didn't have the scale that we needed for that economic equation to close uh, and partnered uh, with Global Foundries. And then they determined that they didn't have the scale to, to keep going on that. And so we you know, are now moving to a new partnership with, with Samsung, uh, who does have the scale to do that. And we're, we're quite confident there that that's going to carry us for a while. So, so how do you find somebody to do that? I mean – um, you, you can't put an ad in the paper to do that, right? Well, in terms of the partners? Yeah. Well, there are only a few options out there. And, and so those are things that, um, you know, the, the discussions and negotiations take place at, at a very high level. And um, there's not a lot of secrets uh, in there. Everybody kind of knows what everybody else is doing. It's just a matter of, of having the, the, uh, the scale and the expertise and uh, the ability just to, to carry it through and do it. You say that there aren't any secrets. Does does that mean that the the way we do our chips because it's a it's a different instruction set, right? It's fundamentally different. Um, do is is that just kind of public knowledge? Or? Well, well, when I say there aren't any secrets, I, I mean there. I was thinking in terms of the of the silicon process. I they there's everything's published. Everybody's you know. Researching the same things, trying the same things. I mean, there are it's kind of exaggeration to say there's no secrets, but there, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's well documented what what the, the different companies are doing, and 
you know, what the physical, physical problems are they're up against. In terms of the actual design, though, that, that's, you know, the part that I've been more involved in. And there, there is a tremendous amount of innovation. You know, each instruction set is different. Um, again, a lot of the techniques are, are published uh, in papers and patents and, and such. Uh, people can look at that and see what's going on. Uh, but there still is a tremendous amount of innovation going on to uh, squeeze more and more performance um, out of those transistors. I say the transistors aren't getting any faster. We are getting more of them to work with. The, the, the challenge is being able to get more performance out of the transistors, out of the power, out of the silicon area that we have to work with. Is that a like a reliability per batch kind of statement as well? Because I would imagine the the more high degree of engineering that goes into these, the more probably fallout for you know for manufacturing probably happens too. Um, that you know we, we're given you know pretty uh, strict set of ground rules that are defined um, around the technology, around what you designed to, uh, how much you try to squeeze in, and everything, and and that's. Those are set so that, you know, within those ground rules, you can operate and uh, have reasonable confidence that it's manufacturable. Now, that said, you're, you're building chips that have, you know, six billion transistors on them. Um, you know, sometimes you, you stop and think of about it and say, there's no way that'll ever yield. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then you stop thinking about that and just go back to your job. Um, so, so there, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, of work that goes on in, in the – in the silicon area, just to define you know, what those ground rules are, to know how far you can push things, how much you have to space things, um, you know, just what you can do with those uh, you know, very, very small transistors in order to make them work reliably. Because this isn't like like ordering a T-shirt where it's like, yeah, make me a proof one of these, and right. they'll take a couple minutes and say, this is what it'll look like. Like one of these actually has to be like made into a process and then created. To see if this is, you know, is what will go forward. Like, what's what's that whole process like? Well, it's, uh, I'll, I'll say there's, there's kind of two parallel development processes going on. Or there's a lot, but I'll, I'll focus on two. One, on the on the the chip process side, there's you know a lot of people working on getting the right recipes for uh, being able to make the transistors smaller, to be able to connect them reliably. You go through a, a whole series of of test chips that just have. Um, different kinds of logic on there that you can go test and see how they work. They oh, really? work, learn the yield. Uh, so they're, they're, that's all going on in parallel with the actual designs that are going to go on there for, for real products. Um, you know, and there's some intersection of that where, you know, along the way with a new process, uh, the, the design team will contribute, you know, macro, small, small pieces of, of logic to go on there to make sure that, the things that we're designing are actually going to work in that process, and it also is a way of testing out the whole tool flow because there's many, many tools that are involved in doing the design and then turning that into what gets manufactured. Right. right? So then, but then in parallel, you've got the the whole logic design process that's going on, where there's a whole you know team of you know hundreds of people working on designing the logic, the, the ands and ors that you actually will you know, do those instructions, that black box that you put the program in and it comes out. Yeah. And, and has to do it exactly right and do it right all the time uh, in all situations. No be pressure. Ab- be, able to, <laughs> be able to do it you know, very efficiently so you've got lots and lots of things going on in parallel. 
Um, so there's, you know, it's a logic design process. It's, you know, in many ways similar to a, a software development process. Uh, and then you, you define that logic. There's a, a very rigorous uh, verification process we go through uh, at, at several different layers. Um, start with, you know, what you're doing at the macro level, then you're doing it at the unit level, then you're doing it at the whole core, and then the whole chip. Wow. Um, and, and verifying um, not just, I'll just throw a few sequences of instructions at it, but throw random instructions at it, do things where you can drive the inputs of it randomly and make sure it's responding exactly like it's supposed to. Uh, so, you know, you, you do that because actually making even prototype chips of these things is extremely expensive. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you're talking millions and millions of dollars just to do the the masks that are needed for, you know, I think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 layers on those chips. Wow. Um, and, and so... Uh, so that's all going on in parallel, and then you bring it all together, and you actually make the the product chip, and you get it to the, you know, onto the testers and then the test systems, and see if it actually works. And I think we uh, I watched that on a live webcast a couple of weeks ago. That was <laughs> right. interesting. Right. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's always exciting when you get first silicon back. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'll, I'll say, you know, in in the course of my career, if I look back to the ones I worked on. Um, when I first started, it started right near the end of the bipolar technology era. Mm. Um, you know, that was, you know, a very different process. It was, you know, it was just gate arrays. And so mostly what you're defining is how you're hooking up the, the gates on the chip. Um, you know, but the, the good news was you could turn those chips around. Those chips were very small. You had a whole bunch of them on a module. Um, you could turn those around in about 30 days, huh. which was good because we had to a lot um i see the the the, what i've seen probably the one of the biggest areas i've seen move besides going from you know one processor is four multi-chip modules to take up a whole board to now one module that same size you know has you know dozens and dozens of processors on it um so that's a big change but uh, one of the I think equally big changes there is what's happened with the tools uh, and particularly the verification tools that we've got. Um, and you're talking about like software tools here. So, yeah, yeah. These are all yeah, – when I say tools, I mean they're, they're programs. It's all the pre-silicon verification that we talk about and also what we do on the test floor um, with, with verification tools there. But um, what, we've, what we've been able to do to where you know, we can now you know, do these – tremendously complex processor chips and we build plans around shipping basically version two uh, of the silicon. I, you know, I say back in the in, in that bipolar machine there was one that was very good design. I'll, I say it was way ahead of its tools um, <laughs> and, and and you know each little chip which is you know just is be a fraction of a macro now. But you know, it, we, we would as we would go through different versions, we would just change the letter at the end. <laughs> um, there was one that we actually had to cycle through the alphabet. Wow! <laughs> um, and uh, is that why it's called the Z machine now? <laughs> no, 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 no. This was way before then. Um, uh, you know, what's sad is I can still remember what chip it was. <laughs> but uh, you know. That we can now do things and like the the latest uh, Z uh, I/O adapter, we shipped version one. Wow! 
you know, it, it just um, was just astounding to me. Did anybody feel like we should do a second one just in case? No, or like no, just, just no. Uh, <laughs> no, no. We're enough. This is good. This is good. Yeah, yes, good. <laughs> well, and, 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 and one of the areas that we've learned a lot about is, is how to build into the chips the ability to work around things. Um, so, you know, we, we mm. you know, anytime you're putting something, some new feature in there, you're, you're building a, a switch to be able to turn it off or to change, you know, if there's some parameter you're not sure about, you, you make it so that you can soft change that. Uh, and that gives us a, a lot of opportunity to work around the little corner cases that, that uh, you run into on the test floor. We, early on in the podcast, we had Brenton Belmar who mm-hmm. came in and talked about, about mode code. And that was, to me, it was really, really interesting. How do you guys decide when something should be done in software and when it should be driven down into the hardware? Um, so between Millicode and hardware implementation of instructions. Um, it's a combination of looking at how complex the function is and at the performance sensitivity. Um, and performance sensitivity in a couple of ways. One is you know, how much faster can you make it in hardware versus Millicode and, and how often do you actually think that function is going to get invoked? How you know, how often that ex- instruction is going to be executed? Um, for the vast majority of instructions, it's you know pretty obvious which way to go. Um, there's a handful of instructions that um, you know call a toss up. Um, I, I, I for for a while when we we were uh, you know doing. Uh, the early CMOS machines when we go in from G4, G5, G6, and, and um, because because those machines, you know, each each chip takes several years to develop. Um, you know, that process of doing the logic and verifying and getting it all out, and and, and so you have to have multiple projects in flight. Uh, it's like a pipeline of of those going on. Otherwise, you know, y- you know, you'd be only shipping them every four or five years. Um, so we would kind of have different uh, processor leaders and kind of you know, uh, ping pong rolls and wrote it down. And, and there, was, there was a point at which I, I, I joked that you could look at a handful of instructions and say, were those done in Millicode or hardware and predict who the chip chief engineer was for that one? <laughs> <laughs> because we all had just slightly different, uh, you know, views on, on certain things. Um, See, I would just make Brenton do it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, um, you know, one of, one, of the, one of the sayings that I... I, I coined a long time ago, and I've since um, jokingly referred to as Webb's Law, is, you know, anything hardware can do, code can do slower. <laughs> um, oh, shots fired. And, and, and uh, yeah, That's going to get back to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Britain's heard it plenty of times. <laughs> but it, it actually, I actually kind of coined that in the context of, of back when it was, it was before we had Millicode, when we were, it was horizontal microcode. But how many things we were fi- ways we were f- finding to use microcode to work around problems in the hardware, <laughs> uh, and and so it really is you know, you know, a compliment, and we still do that a lot, as I'm sure Britton explained. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, the decision is is you know usually pretty straightforward. Um, the trend is to push more into hardware, just because. At, you know, if you've got some new function, you might do it first in Millicode. Once you're sure it's stable, you know how it's going to work. You know, one or two machines later, you may say, all right, it's worth doing this in hardware because I think it's going to be used enough to matter. Um, and, you know, 
there, there's you know just a natural thing. You want to you know the hardware you've got to get right. The middle of code you have the chance to to modify and and uh, and fix over time. So I, I think that's the the other the other factor in there. If it's depending on how complex it is, how much flexibility we think we need in that. Um, so it it's. And when we first moved to Millicode back on, on G4, um, you know, we really wanted to keep the hardware very simple. It was our first full custom CMOS. So we, we actually put a lot of things into Millicode then that have since migrated into hardware. Um, but it's, it's pretty stable now. So generally, it's pretty obvious anything that's going to be a long, complex control sequence is going into Millicode. Um, anything that can be done and, you know, a very few cycles, or is a very simple, regular uh, sequence of things we can do in hardware. But you, you kind of got to be good at predicting things. If it, if I can't uh, make that change from software to hardware in a year cycle, right? It takes a while for you. You got to be thinking ahead all the time to make that work. Yeah, you, you are thinking ahead on that, and and. Um, like I say, there often are things we'll, we'll do a, a new instruction. Initially, they'll go in Millicode. We'll know that we want to move it into hardware eventually. Sometimes we do it in Millicode because of when in the product cycle we come up with it. Uh, there's just not time at that point to safely move it into the hardware. Um, so generally, when we come up with new instructions, we have some idea of how it's going to be used and what frequency and, um, you know, generally uh, – whether it needs to be in hardware eventually or not. So um, I don't know if you can answer this question, um, but I'm going to ask it. I I think I've been uh, thinking about how to phrase this too. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the uh, pervasive encryption, Mm -hmm. right? That's that's now a hardware thing, right? Actually, pervasive encryption is is a a set of technologies. Mm -hmm. It's it's a set of things, hardware and software. you know, we've had encryption uh, on the mainframe for, for quite a long time. Um, in fact, we've had two different forms of hardware-assisted uh, encryption or accelerated encryption um, with both in the, uh, the PCI-attached uh, Crypto Express card and in the, the Crypto coprocessor that's uh, on each core. And, and so we've had that for a long time, and we've had support for crypto in, in the software for a long time. The big change with, with pervasive encryption on, on Z14 really was, I'll say, two, two sets of things, but each of them is a set of things. On the hardware side, we took a step function in how fast that encryption was. We went back to, you know, in particular in the um, coprocessor that's on the chip, um, and you know, redesigned a good part of that to make it much, much faster um, and enable, you know, particularly, you know, some things that required kind of a chaining of functions to do that in the hardware and not have to go back and forth through the coprocessor and the other code. So there was a, a big push in this performance of that. And with that performance boost, it made encryption fast enough that clients can encrypt all of their data without it costing them a lot of performance. Right? Um, you know, how, much, how much performance? Well, it depends on which algorithms you're doing and, and a lot of other things. But really get it down to where it, it's manageable to do that without having to go back and renegotiate their service level agreements with their, with their clients and such. Um, but on the other side of that, there was a, a, quite a bit of software that went into, you know, 
making it easier to use the hardware encryption and uh, making it easier for, for clients to do it by policy instead of having to go in and piecemeal, you know, okay, encrypt this data set, encrypt that data set, encrypt that one. Um, but be able to set policies that would just do it for a whole class of things automatically. So it was it was the you know taking advantage of that new software capability to do it much more easily to deploy it you know across the board uh, along with the faster hardware that made it affordable. But but you had to figure out like years ago that this was important and you were going to do something for that. It, we we did. I mean, it. We've always known crypto was important, and and it was it was clear that that security of all forms was becoming more and more important in the industry. Um, you just have to you know read the headlines occasionally to see that. <laughs> um, so you know it, it it worked out well for us that we were already on a path to significantly improve uh, the hardware there. Um, you know that you know that that coprocessor unit was was due for an overhaul anyway, um, and so uh, that you know the timing was good that we were able to to get uh, the greater performance there and also be able to uh, you know then do the software that would take full advantage of it. Um, so the, you know a lot of that was was in the works you know years and you know years upstream. Um, there were some pieces of it that we came to recognize kind of in, you know, in the middle of the, the Z14 program and we were able to go in and uh, you know, put a couple more pieces in there in the hardware and uh, bring more of it together in the software to really have uh, a pretty compelling story. Yeah, I, I was trying to go down a path that said that you're a genius because you figured out two years ahead of time that we were going to need this. Wow. <laughs> I can edit that in. <laughs> You mentioned earlier about like G3, G4, G5. Are those the same processors or the same family that were in the Power and and Mac at the time machines? No. Okay. No. Just same name. Uh, yeah, we we refer to them. I, I, the the, the uh, again the there were generations, you know, of, of CMOS processors for for uh, uh, mainframe. Okay. So we, we've never we've always been you know unique silicon. It's a unique instruction set. Um, Set different processor from what others use. And can you talk just a little bit about the instruction set of, of Z versus anything else? Okay. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, I Knowing full well that it is like a 40-minute podcast. I'm going to check my watch here. Uh, I, so the instruction set is, is, is just the kind of the interface between software and hardware. Um, it's the set of instructions that the software can use to, uh, you know, to do the programs and the hardware guarantees is going, they're going to behave a particular way. It's something we, it's kind of taken for granted now. It was actually was one of the revolutionary things with um, System 360 uh, back in, in 1964 that there was an instruction set that was not just going to be for one machine or one model, but would be for a bunch of different models and would continue on with that. Um, so uh, the instructions that we have now traces back to uh, those roots um, were application program compatible since 1964. Uh, you, you, you could actually take a program that was written back then and, and still run it. The operating system compatibility, we, we've, you know, every 20 years or so, we have to 
overhaul that. I, I don't think anybody. No, I was going to say I don't think anybody would hold you to that, but some people would. Yeah. Frank I, I, and I were involved yes. with one client. That, yes. yes. <laughs> Um, and there's probably still some code running that was written in the 60s. Yes. Uh, we know for a fact. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, in terms of the, the Z instruction set versus others, um, I, it's classified as a complex instruction set architecture uh, versus your so-called reduced instruction set architectures or RISC, um, although that distinction has become less and less meaningful um, over the last 20 years, I'd say. Um, it, it's referred to as complex uh, partly because it's uh, there's a, a lot of things that are like what we talked about implemented in Millicode and instruction like you know we use now we start subchannel um, would be a, a very very many instructions in in other architectures uh, we do it as one instruction and, and pass it off to firmware um, but also even at a, at a lower level having things like storage to storage instructions um, having decimal arithmetic instructions in there. Um, things that you know, aren't just load store and register to register ops, which is sort of classic risk. And that's uh, like what you would find on like a Raspberry Pi or something yeah, like that. Right. Um, and, and so you know we we've you know they've got all the instructions that were there. The you know the original uh, you know the original instruction set only had room for 256 opcodes. We've long since found ways <laughs> to take one of those and use it as a shift key into a whole another <laughs> class of them. So we've got lots and lots of instructions now. Um, and, and we, we continue to add to it. it. It is different from x86. It's different from power. It's different from ARM. Um, each one is, is unique. But they're all really doing the same things. I mean, if you take our complex instructions, um, even the ones that are implemented in hardware, inside the hardware, they're broken down into what we call micro-instructions uh, underneath. Uh, that look a lot like the micro-instructions that x86 or Power or anyone else would use. We just um, got to do it in one shot. But it's just a matter of, of, of what groups of them you do. And, and, um, you know, and then there's, there's other aspects of the instruction set, the way you address storage, uh, the whole you know, like address space architecture, right. um, all of the, you know, the address translation, the way you handle interrupts. There, there's a, a lot even having to do with, with uh, reliability, with... You know, if you have detect an error, how do you handle that? That's all specified there in the architecture. Um, I think what's what's you know unique with with Z architecture, um, besides being I think the oldest continuous one, um, is that it, it is the rigor that we put into maintaining that compatibility. Um, and it, it's not just uh, oh we're going to be compatible. So we, you know, it, it's <laughs> it, it not just yeah technically it'll work. Uh, but maintaining what I call a, a, a robust compatibility from generation to generation that says, you know, clients can take their code that's been running and they move to the new machine and is not only going to work and produce the, the right answer, but it's going to scale reasonably well performance-wise. They're not going to have to go and retune or re-architect or, or redo their, um, their software when they move to a new machine. Um, and and making sure that we can do that, you know, consistently and um, and do it from generation to generation, and that is a key part of the value proposition of the mainframe is that it protects the, the investment that clients have made in it. Um, you know, they've they've built up a huge you know ecosystem, a huge software architecture. They've got all their business running on this thing. They want to be able to keep moving to the next machine 
and not have to re-engineer all of that. They may add things to it that's going to evolve. They're going to do you know, different things over time. But um, they want to just be able to roll in the new machine, um, move the work over, and have it work. Uh, and that's what they expect and it's what, it's what we designed to. And I think the, the rigor with which we maintain the instruction set architect that we go through a lot of trouble to make sure every case is covered and, and, and everything is defined and it you know, works exactly the way it's supposed to in there. Uh, it's a lot of work that goes into it. It doesn't get appreciated a lot on the outside, uh, but it's, it's key to that robust compatibility that we've maintained for, what, 55 years now. I, I know we're a little, little over, but the career thing, though. That'll yeah, I, 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 we just have to ask. Right? Yeah, have to. I, I'm, cur- I'm genuinely curious. <clears throat> so you've been. He looks do- nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've been doing this for for a very long time. You've been a fellow since since 2003. 2003. What trends have you been seeing? What 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 is what have you seen that really kind of excites you about this? What trends? in this industry are, are you most excited about? That you can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, without revealing any secrets. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, the most interesting thing right now is, you know, the trend around being able to get more value out of the data. Um, you know, for a long time, the, you know, the trend was just more performance, more performance. Um, and we were on that, that Denard scaling Moore's Law curve and uh, – it was it was easy to generate lots more performance. That, that that's gone. We can we're still making sure that things are always a little better each generation, but they're not the the big jumps that we had before. Um, but a lot of attention now. You know, there's so much capacity out there, so much capability in the chips, um, and the software technology has evolved to where you know you're seeing a lot around artificial intelligence in in the consumer space. Uh, but I think the, what's interesting to me is what's going to happen with that in, in the commercial space, in the business space. You know, what are our clients going to do to leverage these machines and take the, the wealth of data? They got lots of data um, you know, on every transaction anybody's done for forever. Um, there's a lot of insight hiding in that data. Um, that can make their businesses better, can make them better able to serve their customers. Um, and, you know, with all the, the headlines around different kinds of AI, the, in the commercial enterprise space, they're really just starting to, to figure out how to apply that. I mean, the, the, the machine learning things that are, you know, identifying pictures and, uh, Self-driving cars; those are interesting. Those are exciting in, in, in one realm, but within the you know within the mainframe space, I think it's you know how are we going to take that technology? How are clients going to take that and use that to get you know new insights and new ways of doing business and and uh, all sorts of new value out of that data? Uh, and you know, you know, so I say working with clients to figure out how to how to really translate that technology into something that um, is key to their businesses uh, is, is, is the hottest thing right now. It's why, we, it's why I'm spending a lot of my time and a lot of focus. Um, and I think the other, the other big you know, obvious trend right now is, is around security. Um, in some ways, it's kind of a scary trend because 
the ones that are out there to try to crack security are, you know, getting more and more innovative and clever. Um, it is a, a challenge to keep up with. It's it's a continual arms race, um, but it's also exciting in, in its own right uh, to say, okay, how can we go make sure our designs are absolutely robust uh, against those? How can we enable our clients to protect their data, protect their systems? Um, you have to think very differently <laughs> in, in thinking about uh, ways somebody might try to uh, attack the system, uh, but it, it it's it's an interesting kind of, of problem to have, and uh, it, it's like I say it's it's definitely a trend of, of having to focus a lot more on that, uh, but it's also an opportunity I think for the for the innovation and the team to come out and um, really generate more value. Well, I, I see we're way past our usual time. Um, so time well spent. Oh, no, no, this was awesome. Um, and I was coming in th- thinking, what are we going to talk about with a hardware guy? I mean, what once once the stuff is run, what what's there to say? So this has actually for me been really really awesome. And we want to thank you, uh, Charles, for coming and being part of this. This is Nicole. You're very welcome. All right, make sure you uh, follow us on the Twitter. Uh, thank you, and continue to get the word out for us. Uh, much appreciated. Yeah, leave, leave a comment. Yeah. <laughs> Click on some stars, write a review, all that kind of stuff. Here's here's a guy who's building processes and we're just uploading MP3 files to <laughs> iTunes. Like, I'm helping. I'm helping. <laughs> oh, oh, man, Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.